Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Keith Costas Podcast Postseason Edition. I'm Bob Ramsey, joined by the star of the show, MLB Network analyst Keith Costas. Well, Keith, it's October. We're here. After all the exciting talk for the last six, seven weeks, no chaos, yet the playoffs (laughs) are here. How are you doing? There was a little taste of it on Sunday. We got to pretend that things were going to completely blow up on us for a few hours yesterday, but... uh, but yeah, Yankees, Red Sox, Cardinals, Dodgers, uh, you know, just like same as any other year, traditional powers at the end of the day, no chaos, and off we go. You know, I think it probably did, despite some of our wishes for more baseball, sort of worked out the way it should have. We we knew all along the Mariners were kind of a sentimental choice because of being an underdog, but underdogs usually have some flaws they're trying to overcome. So that's kind of what happened Uh, to Seattle they couldn't quite keep that magic going for one more game yeah I mean obviously it would have been a little more dramatic and entertaining for the unbiased observers if we got to those playoff games today as we record this on Monday but I do think the way it all played out was kind of what we expected all along and it was still good for the game you had a good mix of like I said those traditional powers that ended up winning then you had the teams like the Mariners that were trying to you know break the longest postseason streak or postseason drought, rather, and all team sports. You had teams like the Phillies charging down the stretch. You had some drama with the Mets. So you had a nice little blend of solid teams that you could get behind and think this team could make a run if they get in. How's it all going to shake out? And some fun stories, too. But at the end of the day, I think teams, uh, fans do want to see the best teams, and I do think we've got probably the best mix of teams in terms of who can actually make a run here in October. Before we get to those matchups, one more, there's one team I feel bad for, and that's the Toronto Blue Jays. As we yeah. look at our grid of the of the tournament for October, the Blue Jays were so exciting, so fun, and really good, yet they couldn't quite get it done, uh, and clearly the toughest division in baseball. Yeah, I mean, they certainly did everything in their power. That sweep down the stretch at Yankee Stadium was really impressive and felt like that was kind of be the going to be the catalyst to get them to October. Certainly did everything in their power yesterday, not controlling their own destiny, putting a ton of runs up. But yeah, it was a bummer to see uh, to see the 22-year-old Vlad Guerrero kind of look up at that scoreboard around the eighth inning and realize that his year was probably over. But you know, there's 10 other teams that are in the postseason that are quite happy that Blue Jays are staying home. I mean, think yeah. about this, Rammer. They had the lowest strikeout total. Actually, I'm not sure if it changed yesterday, but going into that final day of the season, they had the lowest strikeout total in the majors and the most home runs and runs scored. Wow. At least that's what it was you know, down the stretch there. I'm not sure exactly how it finished up, but that combination, I mean, that's what the name of the game has been in October recently is missing bats in the zone, and that team just did not swing and miss and obviously had a ton of thump in the lineup. So just came up a little short, but – a lot of uh, relieved pitching staffs around October that that's not something to deal with. Not that the other teams are any slouches, but that's a scary team to potentially have to face playing with house money in a wild card game. All right, let's get to the matchups. Um, this first wild card game, of course, um, you mentioned last week what your hopes were as a, uh, <laughs> a, as a, as a TV guy for MLB Network. And uh, New York-Boston is the matchup that any TV producer or, or outlet could possibly want with everything on the line. It's it's a wild card game, but it's a game seven, New York and Boston. Yeah, I mean, I guess the Red Sox had no choice with still something to play for yesterday, but the only thing you could hope for beyond what actually ended up happening is I guess you might want Chris Sale going for the Red Sox to set up 
sale versus Cole. But other than that, yeah, for a one-game playoff, you're essentially getting a game seven between the Yankees and the Red Sox that drive ratings like no other team in the sport. And by the way, they're pretty entertaining to watch. I know people get sick of them, but the prospect of watching the judges and the Stantons and that deep Red Sox lineup tee off in a slugfest at a venue like Fenway Park. I know people like to roll their eyes at it, but at the end of the day, I think people do enjoy watching these teams go head to head. Even if it's kind of a hate watch, people are going to be tuned in. <laughs> hate watch. I like that. The uh, um, As we look at these matchups, uh, as I last night and this morning, looking around at, at all of our colleagues uh, that cover the game, um, I feel like uh, in some ways the Red Sox offense is getting a little bit overlooked. Um, I think up and down the Red Sox lineup, um, I think it's better than the Yankees. Uh, However, in one game, you can throw out all that stuff for the the season. It doesn't really matter. But I think up and down, I like the Red Sox lineup. And I think unless you convince me, unless you convince me and I'm open to it, uh, I think I got to pick the, the Red Sox in this game. No, I think I'm with you. And I think the t- people have a tendency, uh, if you're not watching these teams every day, if you see some familiar faces that have been there along their run in recent years, like the Bogarts, like the Martinez, like the Devers, you think you got a pretty good handle on the offense. And that is obviously the bulk of where the offense comes from, from the Red Sox. But, you know, people need to lock in on what some of these other guys in the lineup have done. One of my favorite stories of the second half of the season was kind of the the dynamic between Kyle Schwarber and Bobby Dahlbeck in Boston. Schwarber basically was acquired to replace Dahlbeck as the first baseman DH type on that Red Sox team. But there's been some great stories written out of Boston about how when Schwarber got there, he basically drilled down with Dahlbeck and did everything he could to be a great teammate and, you know, kind of similar players. One's right-handed, one's left-handed, but similar kind of, I don't want to say all or nothing. That shells Schwarber a little short. I think he's a better overall hitter than Dahlbeck, but still the same kind of, profile and what does Schwarber do he doesn't say I'm here to take your job you know I've never played with you I don't know you he helps the kid and -hmm. they both take off I mean Dahlbeck has Mm -hmm. been he was a lost cause midway through the season he's been a major force these last couple months so you still got those professional hitters at the top which I do kind of like it when you talk about the Yankees you know you think about it it's kind of the inverse the Yankees big hitters can go all or nothing at any given time I mean Judge and Stanton are prone to prolonged stretches of you know no production, a ton of strikeouts where you look at the Bogarts and the Martinez's, they're not so all or nothing. And the complimentary right. players are the guys that are all or nothing. So you got a little more stability with the core of the lineup. And then you've got the Schwarbers and the Dahlbecks that if they're hot can go and, you know, carry you for a couple of weeks as like a 40, 50 home run type power guy if they're going good at the bottom of the lineup where the Yankees is kind of the inverse, you know, that middle of the lineup can kind of go absent at any given time. So your, your second point kind of holds true for all this stuff. It's a one-game playoff, so what's the point of really analyzing? They could go either way. The Marlins could come in and win this thing and knock off the Rays. Anything could happen if you match up any baseball teams on a given day. But I do like uh, where you're coming from in terms of the Red Sox lineup, maybe being a little bit more dependable and at full strength just as good as that Yankees group. Flipping to the other wild card game, you've got St. Louis playing, uh, playing the Dodgers on Wednesday. Um this is one of those things that it feels like if you were trying to handicap it, which we are, um, that um, the Adam Wainwright 40-year-old magic must continue. Uh, he and Scherzer will hook up, and the expectation is a low-scoring game if the Cardinals can be in it. My question would be for Mike Schilt if 
the Dodgers get to Wainwright. He only has to hang a couple of his vaunted curveballs, and and the Dodgers up and down the lineup will punish that. Yeah. How quickly do you go to your bullpen and becomes a mix and match game? And uh, so I think those kinds of dynamics will uh, that'll be the exciting part of the game. Uh, if Wainwright's not perfect, can the Cardinals make a quick adjustment? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And then on the flip side, if Wainwright is on, to me, one of the things to watch in this game is how much are the Cardinals going to play for the one run? Because, I mean, think about the yes. NL West. We've watched it all year long, and the Giants win 107 games. And even with 107 wins on their resume, it seems like nobody, myself included, can figure out or justify the Giants being a better team than the Dodgers, even though we just played six months to figure out who was going to come out ahead of each other. So I don't know how anyone's going to turn around and make a case for the Cardinals having a good chance in this game when they're 15, 20 games behind those two teams. But obviously anything can happen. And if Wainwright is on, the one kind of silver lining that I look at for the Cardinals here is stolen bases. The Cardinals will run. I think they had the sixth most stolen bases in the league, and none of those teams ahead of them were more successful. So there's no team that had a combination of the kind of volume of stolen bases and the success rate that the Cardinals had. And then you look on the flip side, Cardinals second fewest stolen bases allowed. Obviously, Yachty is a complete deterrent in the running game. Dodgers second most stolen bases allowed. So do I think that's going to be the key to the game? Probably not. But if Wainwright and Scherzer are locked up in a pitcher's duel and you've got the Edmonds and the O'Neills and the Baders getting on base and you can play for one run, who knows? We get a 2-1, 3-1, 3-0 game. That could be a big key, you know, just moving those runners into scoring position. So advantage Dodgers, obviously, by a pretty yeah. comfortable margin. But there's some things I think that the Cardinals can, uh, can do on the field that could pose some problems for them. You know, uh, I, I tweeted this out. I guess it was Friday from Bush Stadium. Um, the Cardinals ended up losing the game to the Cubs, but they had an unbelievable inning. And this, I think, to me, watching Wednesday will be, can the Cardinals keep their mind right? And what happened in that big inning the Cardinals had to take the lead, two of their best hitters uh, went the other way against the ship shift intentionally. Yeah, The guy who's been as good as anybody in the game the last two months, Tyler O'Neill, hit the ball on the ground to the right side against the shift, and then Dylan Carlson against an extreme shift, which surprised me anyway, just flipped the bat out there and rolled, and rolled one into left field. If the Cardinals are willing to do that, I think they have a great chance against the Dodgers. But for a guy who watches every Cardinal game, my fear is – that and for some guys who have been red hot, I get it. If you can hit a ball 400 feet, why would you try anything else? But I think they could play in to Scherzer's hands if every guy's trying to jack it out on him, take one of his fastballs and turn it around. I think you hit on it first. If the Cardinals can take advantage of some small ball, look at what the Dodgers are giving them and take advantage of it, use their heads, play smarter. That's how. That's what I think is their best chance to win. Now watch the Cardinals win nine to two with four bombs. I, I mean, there's no in a single right. game, but I think going in, using their head as much as anything will give them their best shot. Yeah, I'm with you, and not really directly related to the point you're making, but just thinking about that infield moving around and and the right side of that infield. You know, there was a lot to keep track of yesterday. Kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit was what happened with Max Muncie. Not yes. an insignificant. A development out in LA. Now, 
obviously they're the Dodgers. They've got a monster payroll. So what do they do? They look at their bench and they say, well, do we want to put in the former three-time MVP at first base or the one-time MVP at first base with Pujols and Bellinger? So they've got some good solutions there, but Muncie's kind of that steady presence in that lineup that really makes pitchers work. So who knows? That could uh, that could be a factor as well. And obviously, if it ends up being Pujols, that's a nice little uh, backdrop of theater and drama too with Pujols versus Wainwright in the postseason stage. Yeah, the Dodgers lineup. It can't be said too much how good it is and yeah. how great it got with Pollock coming back. Yeah. And um, of all the guys, we know Trey Turner is going to be dynamic. And and well, again, you could name every guy up and down the lineup. A guy nobody ever talks about, and Will Smith. I mean, it's just an absolutely imposing lineup, and Wainwright and the Cardinal bullpen will have to be great if they have any chance at all on Wednesday. Absolutely. So looking looking ahead to the other games that are just kind of waiting around for everybody else to get done, um, uh, staying in the uh, in the National League, the Braves and the Brewers. This one's a little bit under the a uh, little bit under the radar. Uh, the Brewers. Oh, it's not fair to say they limped into postseason after a, a great year. But again, a little bit under the radar. The Braves did what they had to do. Um, uh, a marvelous job of creating a makeshift lineup at the trade deadline. Um, two teams, though, that um, uh, I'm not sure what to think of that one, except maybe the Brewers bullpen. The last month of the season wasn't as great as it was all year long. Could yeah. that be the difference? in a series between the Braves and the Brewers? Well, I mean, I think obviously the biggest storyline going into this one, or maybe not the biggest storyline, it's hard to say that somebody who's going to throw probably five innings in a given series is the biggest storyline, but what happened with Devin Williams has to be at or near the top of the conversation here. So the thing I'm looking forward to most, or at least most curious about, is how Craig Council is going to handle that pitching staff. There were some guys uh, some guys that followed the Brewers pretty closely at MLB Network, some former players that suggested maybe Freddie Peralta could be in line to be used in more of a hybrid role. He's already at his career high in innings. Even if you look at minor league stuff in the past, he, he's up there coming off the shortened season in terms of his workload. It doesn't look like it's going to be an issue in the immediate future, but you know, that's something they obviously want to keep an eye on. So is there any thought that Peralta could be, <clears throat> excuse me, in kind of a swing role in the postseason? How do they fill that Devin Williams role? Or is it a guy like Ashby? You know, could that be the next kind of reliever to starter that we've seen that kind of formula with Burns and Woodruff and Peralta from the Brewers in the past, where you see these guys in kind of impact relief roles early. I know that's not exactly a unique development plan, but a really aggressive usage in the playoffs and down the stretch in big games for a guy like Ashby. And then we see him in the rotation eventually. So they've got a couple of different ways they could go for how to fill that role there. But yeah, that is an intriguing series with two teams that have kind of been there recently and haven't quite been able to break through. And you mentioned it with the, with the Braves. We know what their infield has done. Basically everyone on their infield hit 30 homers and then to just completely reinvent the outfield on the fly. And then you look in the rotation, all of a sudden you look up and Charlie Morton and Max Freed really got it rolling down the, down the stretch, especially Freed. So if you can get, you know, something like they had last year with Ian Anderson stepping up out of nowhere, he had a sub one ERA and four starts in the postseason. If they can just get a third guy rolling with those two, all of a sudden the Braves with that remade lineup look like you know, they went through a lot this season, but all of a sudden they look kind of what they were supposed to look like coming into the season. Yeah. Obviously, you can't replace Nakunya, but the kind of formula they have going right now really isn't that far off from what they thought it would have looked like if they, you know, won 96, 98 games and cruised the division title like they expected. So, yeah, there's definitely some intrigue there, but 
that being said, back to the Brewers pitching, nobody has that swing and miss stuff in the zone with their top end pitchers like the Brewers. And that's been the name of the game in the postseason over the last couple of years. So if they can do enough offensively, I think you've got to like their chances in that series to move forward. One more thing about the Braves as a self-described lineup nerd. Um, what has happened in the game the last few years, completely changing the dynamic of 125 years or so of the game of baseball. Um, and I look at the Braves and say, oh, what are we going to do about leadoff? Let's put a guy who um, is not an on-base guy, Jorge Soler. In a hun- I-, I mean, in any scenario you would have thought of before this season, could you ever imagine a lineup where Jorge Soler is your leadoff guy? Yet they make it work. And he was great again yesterday. I, being willing to think outside the box, what so many managers and GMs are doing today in the game of baseball, I think is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and especially, I know we hit on this once before uh, a couple weeks ago, but especially when you consider the way that that organization is set up for Brian Snitker, a guy that grew up, you know, managing in the minor leagues, you know, computers, forget about it. I guarantee you that guy never had anything electronic in the dugout when he was down at Gwinnett. And he's a guy that likes to ride in the same lineup every day early in his tenure. So for him to be, oh, I guess they didn't have many choices. Their backs were against the wall with what happened injury-wise. But for him to be open to this whole situation with a completely new team and you replace the kind of dynamo of a Ronald Acuna with something completely unconventional like Jorge Soler, I think you got to give him a lot of credit. I know that he's, you know, he's been a well-respected manager over his first couple of years there in Atlanta it seems kind of almost more sentimental. Oh, look at this guy. He finally made it through. They rewarded the organizational guy, but give him some credit for the actual moves that he's been willing to make. Remember early in the season two, he had some kind of uncomfortable off the field stuff with Acuna with some of those celebrations. There was potential for this thing to go off the rails Mm -hmm. in Atlanta early in the first half. And for them to write the ship and do it in the manner that you described is pretty impressive for a guy with Snickers kind of background and where he's at in terms of being towards the end of his career. And the other matchup later in the week is one that um, I think I'm as excited about it as any of the matchups. When you've got one of the great guys of the game, Dusty Baker, who's one of the terrific managers. This is fourth or fifth team that he's taken to postseason. And then on the other side, you've got one of my personal favorite people. And all well, he's already a Hall of Famer in Tony La Russa, two great offenses, uh, I think the White Sox Astros is going to be fireworks and fun. For those who, who don't know, Baker and LaRusso over the years have really battled uh, mm-hmm. when they've managed against each other. This could be one of the great series. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm really, really looking forward to that one. And forget everything I just said about Brian Snicker's experience and veteran status. He might as well be in diapers compared to these two. I mean, two of the five oldest managers in the history of the game matching up. It doesn't really get much better than that. And I knew, like, obviously everything you're saying, Rammer, about them clashing over the years, you know, the big Reds brawl, all the Cubs, Cardinals stuff, their history even at the end of Dusty's career when Tony managed him for about two months in Oakland there in 86. There's plenty of stuff there. I was shocked, though, when you actually just look and do a little bit of the accounting. How about this? 208 regular season matchups. Larusa uh, Baker won five of seven this year. That evened at 104-104. So wow. talk about a great matchup of these guys that went, went up against each other for so long in the National League. I mean, that's enough to kind of get the, the juices going right there. But the teams themselves, I mean, it's a pretty, a pretty entertaining matchup. And Again, we talk about that swing and miss stuff in the postseason. The White Sox are a fastball-heavy team. They get a ton of strikeouts. 
And the Astros aren't just a great offense. They are by far, by far the best contact team in baseball. And that's been the staple of their offense over the last five, six years as they've kind of reasserted themselves as one of the powers in the game. So, yeah, the managerial matchup is super interesting. There's plenty of star power all around the diamond. But I think that White Sox pitching staff going up against the Astros, especially with their postseason experience in that Astros lineup, that's going to be a great clash to watch, kind of seeing how not just the base hits and the home runs, but how, you know, kind of what we were talking about with Cardinals Dodgers earlier, can the Astros experience and bat to ball skills kind of control that series in terms of the timely hitting and situational hitting is something that I'm really looking forward to watch. In that matchup too, so many great individuals to make up those tremendous lineups. Yeah. One in, in, I mean, you can, Michael Brantley is one of my favorite players, the way he plays Altuve career. I mean, all up and down, but the guy who I think is underrated just because the lineup has so much star power is Tucker. This kid yeah. mashes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. And then the way I kind of thought about it, looking at their lineup going into this into the postseason is they've got these kind of duos they've got, you know, Correa and Altuve up the middle, one of the best double play combinations ever. They didn't have necessarily their best all-around seasons, but they did both hit career highs and home runs. Then you've got those veteran professional hitters, the Gurriels and the Brantleys that are right in the thick of the batting title race, one from the left side, one from the right side. Then you've got the young guys. You've got Tucker and Alvarez, who I think Tucker had the highest OPS on the team. Alvarez had the most RBIs on the team. So you've got these different kind of pods of hitters to go with the overall culture that they've established there. It's a really, really deep lineup. And, you know, they got good performances from their veteran hitters this year, obviously is the best offense in the league, but you hit it. I would have gone with Alvarez, but Tucker's just as good of a choice. Those two young left-handed hitters have really, really kind of helped solidify that offense. And it's not hard to see how they're going to turn the page. You know, if they do end up losing Correa in free agency, or they do go through a little bit of a transition here, they have that next wave of player, not just ready to go, but already, significant significant factors in what's happening this year so and then you toss in Bregman coming back from an injury you know in the second half of the season he hasn't been quite up to normal Bregman levels but yeah they've got things rolling and look like they're uh, they're firing on all cylinders offensively going into October and I don't know who you would pick in the White Sox lineup you know granted the bottom half of their lineup might be not quite as explosive uh, mm-hmm. as the Astros but a guy who was hurt most of the year and has come back and just been dominant. Luis Robert is a guy in a lineup top half, you know, Anderson Abreu and these other guys. But uh, Luis Robert could be a difference maker. Probably yeah, will really, if they win. Yeah, really all three of the guys that missed significant times, significant time for the White Sox this year, Grandal, Jimenez, and Robert. If you look at their numbers since they came back, you know, missed time, sure, but picked up right where they left off. All of their numbers look very, very good since they – rejoin that lineup but the thing that's kind of interesting is that they actually scored more runs in the first half of the season when they were kind of mixing and matching for whatever the reason is I mean some of that can be chalked up to you have to go back and look maybe they had some 17 run games to throw things off or or whatever it's still a relatively small sample size when you start chopping up in an individual season but it is kind of curious that they got all those big guns back and really really hit the ground running but it didn't exactly translate into this massive offensive production. If you told me after the first half that the White Sox had that they were going to get those three guys back at full strength, I would have thought they'd be averaging close to six runs a game. But that hasn't really been the case. And the pitching has been just as good from start to finish for the White Sox as the offense has. So, you know, how that uh, how that pitching staff kind of holds up with, you know, Dallas Keuchel is really probably not going to be a factor in the rotation. He's destined for a long relief role. Rodon's velocity was going down towards the end of the season. So I know we talked about that swing and miss, but how the 
how those starting pitchers actually perform in the postseason, I think there's a pretty wide range of possibilities for how this White Sox, White Sox staff fares against the Astros. You know, so I focus more on the pitching for the White Sox than the lineup, probably. So tell me um, about uh, MLB Network, what we're going to see, what your duties are going to be. Are you going to be in the analytics bunker uh, throughout <laughs> October? Or are you going to move around? What's going to happen with MLB Network? So we've got a couple DS games coming up. We always flip back and forth ALNL each year and do one game from each series. So we'll have one game from the Rays versus the wildcard winner, one game from the White Sox and the Astros. Which games those are, I will get back to you unless you know someone at Fox that could provide that information for me and which games they want to give up. That would be helpful. But we'll have one game in each series. And uh, other than that, it'll just be the normal studio coverage until we get to the World Series. And then me personally, no one in America will see this, but uh, we get to do the MLB International broadcast for the World Series, which is always kind of fun. Provide a secondary feed, all the English-speaking languages around, and then kind of a clean feed that, you know, the announcers in Japan can take what we're doing and dub their own commentary in over it or whatever country around the world. So that's kind of a fun thing to be involved in the World Series broadcast, too. Yeah, that's fascinating. And sometimes we don't we think of it as, as such an American game, even though we know that it's being played all over the world, especially the Asian countries that yep. are producing so much big league talent. Um, that's a pretty exciting opportunity to be involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to see, like you said, how things uh, how things get done around the world, different different styles of broadcasting. And certainly recently with, like you said, all of the production from from the Asian born players, it's been pretty neat to see the outpouring. I think that even casual fans understand that when an Ichiro shows up or an Otani shows up, it is quadrupling sometimes the traveling party of media because everyone is locked in on just about everything. And that was something cool, not necessarily postseason related, but the all-star game this year, I think everyone knew that Otani was kind of the star of the show and he carried the day in terms of being the biggest attraction, but you had to be there to understand what kind of cultural impact this game has outside of our borders, because it was a strong, strong showing from the Japanese fans. I mean, the airport was just filled with Otani jerseys. So it's no different when the postseason comes. It doesn't have to be an Otani. If there's a sixth inning reliever from Japan, you know that they're going to be there following it, just like a Tichiro or Hideki Matsui or anything like that. So there is a healthy, healthy appetite for baseball outside of America, and the World Series always puts that on full display. Well, we're looking forward to everything MLB Network does. You and I will uh, visit again soon, and we'll probably uh, we'll see how these games go. Probably all of our analytics and analysis will just throw them out the window and, <laughs> and start over again for the next round. Keith, always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. All right, Rammer. Thanks. That's Keith Costas on the Keith Costas Podcast. I'm Bob Ramsey, and we'll see you next time.